When a mild-mannered father and his 12-year-old son are shot execution-style inside their Bay Area home, there's no apparent motive. Investigators are puzzled by one of the most unlikely double homicides in suburban California history in this episode of Last Seen Alive. Thanks for listening to Last Seen Alive. I'm your host, Leah, crime analyst by day and true crime storyteller by night. And as always, I'm your co-host, Scott. And might I say, that is quite the hook for this episode. This is a weird one. Very strange, very unlikely crime. There's a reason there's no answers after so many years. Neil and Brendan Abernathy were last seen alive on February 19th, 1997. They were father and son. Neil was 43 years old and owned a local franchise auto repair shop that was part of a larger chain. He wasn't a mechanic, but rather handled the shop's business affairs and customer service. He was an easygoing man, and at work, he was known for being particularly accommodating and generous when it came to dealing with customers who were unhappy in any way. In fact, he was a generous guy in every aspect of life and is remembered fondly by many for his habit of giving thoughtful gifts. Brendan, his son, was just 12, a 7th grader at a local middle school. He had a knack for sciences of any kind, but especially computer science. They lived in Hercules, California, a suburban community home to about 18,000 people at the time, which overlooks the San Pablo Bay. Hercules lies within the San Francisco Bay Area and is a 10-mile or 16-kilometer northward drive from Berkeley. And it wasn't just Neil and Brendan in the family home, either. There was also Susan, who was Neil's wife and Brendan's mom. She was 41 years old at the time and worked as a professional chemist. She and Neil had been college sweethearts, and Brendan was their only child. They'd moved into their home in Hercules nearly a dozen years beforehand when he'd only been a few months old. They loved their home and were known for hosting dinners and get-togethers. Both Neil and Susan loved to entertain, and often their get-togethers were potluck style. Overall, their life in Hercules had been a peaceful one. Hercules was then, and still is, a low-crime area. Its violent crime rates are only about a quarter of the California average, and its property crime rates are markedly lower, too. Generally speaking, it's a safe place to live and to raise a family. Neil and Susan likely never felt unsafe in their town or home, nor should they have. They had every reason to expect to be able to raise their son safely in their corner of the Bay Area, but unfortunately, that's not what happened. And to this day, investigators are still struggling to determine why. February 19th, 1997 was a Wednesday, and it began without fanfare for the Abernathys. Susan went to work while Neil was home with Brendan, who was home because his school was having some sort of administrative day. Brendan had a lot of orthodontic work scheduled for that day, which Neil took him to that morning. After the morning appointment, Brendan and Neil grabbed lunch at a fast food restaurant. While there, they spoke briefly to Susan, who was taking her own lunch break at work. Their conversation ended with Susan telling them she loved them, and then Neil and Brendan returned to the orthodontist's office for additional work, including x-rays of Brendan's teeth. They finally finished up and returned home at some point in the mid-afternoon. When they got home, Neil used a magnet to hang the little next appointment card the orthodontist's office had given them on the family fridge. We know because Susan would see it there later that day when she got home, and shortly thereafter, so would police because at some point shortly after Neil and Brendan got home from the orthodontist's office and hung that little card on the fridge, 
someone entered the home and killed them both in what investigators believe was a premeditated act of murder. A couple hours later, at about six that evening, Susan arrived home. She participated in a carpool with other commuters, and that day it had been her turn to drive. After dropping off a fellow participant at their home, she'd stopped to fuel up her vehicle before finally driving to her own house. When she arrived, the family's pet Corgi greeted her at the front door. There was nothing unusual about that, but that was where the usual ended. As soon as she entered the home, it was apparent that things were different than usual. All the kitchen cupboards and drawers had been flung open and left that way, an unusual sight. But when Susan entered the living room, the state of the kitchen quickly became the least of her worries. Neil and Brendan were lying face down on the floor with Brendan slumped over Neil. It looked as if he'd been trying to help his dad. At first, as Susan's mind attempted to process the scene, she thought that they might have been wrestling, play fighting on the living room floor, but they weren't moving and there was blood. When these details clicked, Susan turned and fled to the next door neighbor's house, not knowing if whoever had hurt her husband and son was still inside her home. Next door, she dialed 911 and told the dispatcher about the scene she'd arrived home to. Officers arrived shortly thereafter and were baffled by what they saw. Neil and Brendan lay on the living room floor, just as Susan had said. It was apparent that someone had shot them each in the back of the head, execution style. The killer had bound them, although exactly how and with what varies from information source to information source. Some articles I read state that they were bound with electrical cords, others with electrical tape. Some say that the killer or killers brought the binding material along with them, whatever it was, while others say that it came from within the home. Now, I'm not sure what the reason behind these informational discrepancies is, but all sources do seem to agree that they were bound somehow. It's kind of annoying that they don't have their story straight with whether they brought it with them or not, because that definitely would help play into the premeditated or opportunist. It really would. And I will say for what it's worth, investigators believe this was premeditated. So if I had to guess, I would say maybe they brought it along. Now, I will add that Brendan and Neil, they were not tortured. They were each shot with a single round to the back of the head, so I don't really know why they were bound. I don't know if their killer was deciding on what they were going to do, whether they were going to kill them or not. It seems a little odd to me. It seems unnecessary. The one thing that comes to mind is if they were bound, it's easier to control. If it was a single individual, they could have been doing that just to try to help control the scene or control the movement of people or what they could and couldn't do. It's true, but if you're going to say, hey, get down on the floor, you know, why don't you just shoot them then instead of binding them, taking the time to do that and then shooting them? Unless you're trying to get some information out of them, we were planning on torturing them. And as far as I know, neither of those things were done. So I thought it was a little odd, but who knows? The one thing I could see is trying to get information, like if they were there for something. Sure. Now, if that was the case, I have no idea what it was about. Now, in any case, investigators were also baffled. Execution-style killings didn't happen in Hercules at all, and they certainly didn't happen to upper-middle-class, mild-mannered father-and-son duos returning home from orthodontist visits. Investigators scoured the crime scene for any signs of possible motive and found that a few valuable items had been taken, specifically a piece of stereo equipment, the telephone answering machine, and a single amethyst necklace belonging to Susan had been taken. Still, many other valuables throughout the house remained untouched, and the combined value of the stolen items wasn't particularly high. It didn't appear as if robbery had been the motive. Surely, if someone was willing to kill a father and child execution style in order to take their valuables, they would actually take most or all of their valuables. 
the one thing that stood out with all of that was the answering machine. It seems like a really mm-hmm. unique thing to take. So I'm wondering if it had somehow incriminated them or if they had previously called to make some sort of extortionary threat or something. Or to check whether they were home, perhaps. Possibly. That's a really good thought. Now, the answering machine was never recovered. I don't know if that's why they took it or if it was just something they grabbed. But I think that's possible. It definitely seems like trying to cover your tracks. It does. And as for the several items that were taken... It was almost as if the killers had grabbed a couple of easily portable medium value items, you know, the necklace and that piece of stereo equipment, in order to make it appear as if robbery had been a motive. Yeah, I could definitely see that. It's not reading like a normal robbery to me, but I could definitely see somebody attempting to make it look like one. Yeah. Oh, I'll grab this piece of stereo equipment and a necklace, you know. Even still, the answering machine doesn't fit with those other items. I agree. It stands out. It's odd. There's not a lot of call for fencing answering machines, I don't think. Not even in the 90s. Investigators struggled to puzzle out the real motive, but found it an incredibly difficult task. The more they learned about Neil and Brendan, the more incredible it seemed that anyone would want to murder either of them. Brendan, of course, was only a 12-year-old child and a very well-behaved child at that. Far from being some kind of budding juvenile delinquent, Brendan was an intelligent and academically ambitious young man who earned straight A's and had taken first place at his school's science fair that year. And Neil wasn't much edgier than his 12-year-old son. In fact, they were two peas in a pod, both highly intelligent, mild-mannered, and interested in the same things. Neil was known for preferring spending time with his son over running his business, and often managed it from home so that he could be there for Brendan. In fact, Neil's preference for family life over business was obvious to the point that some of his employees have said that he didn't really seem to care all that much about his business, which may have been true as at the time he was reportedly thinking about selling it. And then there were Neil's hobbies. According to an article by Carl Fisher for the East Bay Times, Neil's, quote, raciest habit, unquote, was a hobby that the entire Abernathy family was involved in, historical reenactment. Journalist Carl Fisher interviewed a fellow reenactor, a UC Berkeley crystallographer named Frederick, who was also a charter member of the Society for Creative Anachronism, to which Neil also belonged. Here's what he had to say about Neil and their shared hobby. Quote, I met him at fighter practices, which were held every week. We dress in real armor and hit each other with sticks rather than steel swords. It's good, healthy exercise and allows us to do things like hold tournaments and otherwise recreate aspects of the Middle Ages, end quote. Now, Neil had always loved immersing himself in history as well as fantasy. He was a huge fan of strategy-based board games, and his sister told journalist Carl Fisher that when they'd been kids, Neil had regularly commandeered entire rooms of the family home in order to construct his own elaborate versions of the board game Risk inside of. So to sum it up, Neil was decidedly not what you would call a bad boy or someone living a high-risk lifestyle. Those who knew him described him with words like steady, introspective, honest, generous, non-confrontational, and marriage material. In that article by Carl Fisher, a friend of Susan's from college said the following about Neil, quote, He was the kind of guy you would have wanted to find in college and marry. A lot of us envied Sue for having gotten to him first, end quote. Investigators noted that there were no real signs of struggle in the living room, which tracked with what those who knew Neil had to say about him. 
They said that he would have been far more likely to remain calm and try to talk his way out of a dangerous situation than to immediately resort to physical action. If that was what he'd done, it obviously hadn't changed his and Brendan's ultimate fates. And there were some defensive wounds on Neil's body that indicated that he'd attempted to resist, probably when he'd realized he had no other recourse. Unfortunately, investigators believed, whoever had killed Neil and Brendan had probably come to their home determined to do so. But why? In an effort to make sense of the crime, investigators canvassed the neighborhood, speaking to anyone and everyone, obtaining interviews and fingerprints as they went. Here and there, they found little leads, but each of them quickly fizzled out. For example, someone reported seeing a strange car in the neighborhood on the day of the double murder, but that never really went anywhere. Investigators also learned that Neil had recently argued with a customer at his auto shop, which was a rare occurrence. Neil was soft-hearted, non-confrontational. Reportedly, he almost always gave unsatisfied customers their money back, even if it wasn't necessarily justified. But for whatever reason, he hadn't been able to appease this customer, and that stood out to investigators. However, when investigators interviewed that customer, they quickly realized that he had had nothing to do with the crime. The timing of the argument had merely been a coincidence. Yeah, that was my first thought was maybe it's an unhappy customer. It's possible. All of the mechanics I know have stories about people that they just could not make happy. Yeah, I think that's true for anyone really who works in a customer or public facing role. But if that is what happened here, investigators have not been able to identify it. It's to the point where I'd almost be more suspicious of it if he didn't have any at all. Right? Some people just can't be made happy. Naturally, investigators also interviewed Susan. Although they ruled her out as a suspect, they thought that she might know something relevant to the investigation, even if she herself didn't realize it. They questioned her over and over again, hoping to glean some piece of information that would help them make sense of what seemed like a senseless crime. Susan, whose family had been destroyed in a single, otherwise ordinary afternoon, grew frustrated by investigators' belief that she must know more than she realized. She later told SF Gate that she believed the killer had probably been a stranger and that their motive probably really had been robbery. Nothing else made sense as far as she was concerned. Her husband and son's deaths had likely been a terrible, random act of greed-driven violence. Investigators disagreed, believing that the crime scene had been half-heartedly staged in order to look like a robbery. Still, they didn't know why anyone would want to kill Neil or Brendan, and so it's easy to see why Susan doubted their theory. In the months leading up to the murders, things had been going especially well for the Abernathys. In an interview with Suzanne Espinoza Solis, Susan would later explain, quote, We were spending more time with friends at home. February 5th was Neil's birthday. He turned 43. Brendan got accepted in a student ambassador program and had just found out that he was going to Australia. We spent our weekends with some of our best friends in Modesto. On Valentine's Day, we spent the day at home together. Things were just great. Neil was talking about selling the business. He was going to do something different, end quote. Heartbroken after the destruction of her family, Susan went to stay with friends about 20 minutes away in the nearby town of Martinez. She lived with them for several months before eventually returning to her own home. By the time she returned home, she'd also hired a lawyer. She felt more and more frustrated with police, who she felt were constantly questioning her while simultaneously refusing to share any meaningful information about the investigation with her. She'd spoken with them over and over for hours at a time, going over seemingly every little detail of her life back to childhood. 
She was a middle-aged woman, and yet they knew who her neighbors had been back when she'd been in preschool and who her high school friends had been. But no matter how much she told them, the flow of information only seemed to go one way. She felt simultaneously exposed and left in the dark regarding the investigation into the annihilation of her own family. Investigators were frustrated by Susan's decision to hire a lawyer, and Susan was presumably even more frustrated by the fact that her husband and only child had been taken away from her in an act of unexplained violence, one that police didn't seem anywhere close to being able to figure out. Regarding her return to the home she'd shared with her husband and son, Susan told SF Gate that, quote, They can take a lot away from me, but I'm going to keep my job, my home, and my car. I'm not angry, but defiant, end quote. Some people were surprised that Susan was able to stomach returning to the home where she'd discovered her husband and only child dead by homicide. She acknowledged this, telling journalist Suzanne Espinoza Solis, quote, This house was really positive. It always felt like a positive, warm place. We had lots of friends here, lots of potlucks. I never had any negative feelings here. I still feel like that, end quote. So she kept the home she'd spent a dozen happy years in with her husband and son and did her best to cherish it and the memories it held while also refreshing it. According to that article by Suzanne Espinoza Solis, Susan eventually replaced the flooring, trading carpets for wood. She painted the walls new colors and had a high-quality security system installed. Prior to the murders, the Abernathy family had never even locked their doors. But things were, of course, very different when Susan moved back into the home. And most unnervingly of all, the murderer or murderers were still out there. Meanwhile, in March of 1997, about a month after the double homicide, investigators had received a potential lead, not by phone or word of mouth, but via mail in the form of a mysterious anonymous letter. More on that next. Welcome to Codependence. What's up, guys? I'm Sierra Miller, and I want you to join me and my sister, Maya Allen, every week for the inside scoop into our sisterhood. You will be getting front row access to the good, the bad, the ugly, and the pretty. So come let your guard down with your fellow codependents as we laugh and of course cry our way through this crazy world. See you every Wednesday. And now back to Neil and Brendan's story. In March of 1997, approximately a month after Neil and Brendan's deaths, Investigators at the Hercules Police Department received an anonymous letter in the mail. When they opened it, they found a short, single-page, handwritten note that read simply as follows, quote, Regarding the Abernathy shootings in February, there are no tears, end quote. And it was signed by someone who knows. What a weird letter. Very weird. There was no indication of who had sent the letter, nor was there any proof that whoever had sent it had any inside knowledge of the crime. The letter merely offered an opinion, and a pretty rude one at that. Still, investigators had the handwriting analyzed, and the analyst concluded that a woman had most likely written the letter. And to the best of my knowledge, to this day, that's all that's known about the letter. So bizarre, honestly. It is. Like you said, it doesn't really offer any inside knowledge. Now, Scott, I don't know about you, but if I had to guess whether or not this letter was actually written by someone involved in the crime, I would guess that it wasn't. I am hesitant to say that it would be, just because it doesn't really feel like the kind of attack that a woman would normally commit. So statistically, it's not really likely that it would be a woman. You're right. It would be very unusual. 
So that kind of throws me off a little bit. It's not impossible, but it gives me enough reason to question it. Definitely. Now, I could, of course, be wrong, but the judgmental tone of the letter, the fact that it offers nothing more than an opinion, and the fact that it's believed to likely have been written by a woman all suggest to me that it was perhaps written by someone who simply wanted to insert their opinion into the case. The attention has long since dried up, but for a short while after the murders, this case was pretty big news. So a lot of people heard about it on TV or read about it in the paper when it happened. And a lot of people were critical of Susan, who some felt didn't mourn dramatically or publicly enough to be deserving of their sympathy. I know that happens a lot Mm -hmm. in these high-profile crimes. Yes, everyone seems to have a very strong opinion when it comes to stuff like this. And so many people are judged based off of how they react to this publicly. Yes. And it's a catch-22 because if the victim or the survivor does go out of their way to seem overly dramatic, then they're not being genuine or they don't appear like they're being honest or they give the sense that they're trying to overcompensate so that they don't make themselves appear to be a witness. But then if they don't do enough, Mm -hmm. they're trying to hide something or they're guilty because of that interaction at the same time. Right. You have to put on this kind of middle ground show while you're trying to grieve. Yeah, which is absurd and unfair, but you know how people can get. You just explained it. Some people will see a story on the news, one that has professional investigators stumped, and will immediately jump to their own emotionally-based conclusions about what happened. Guilty in the court of public perception. Right. Now, I suspect that that may be what was going on with the letter. But again, that's only my opinion, and I could be mistaken. In addition to the anonymous letter, there was also an anonymous caller who, for some reason, is said to have called a local church about the murders twice. What exactly they said, who they were, and whether they had any sort of inside knowledge of the crime, I don't know. There's not much information out there on the phone calls. When it comes to theories regarding Neil and Brendan's seemingly senseless murders, some have been proposed, often by the public, over the years, and among them, some are more grounded than others. For example, when the public learned that Neil and Brendan had been shot execution style, Some immediately assumed that drugs had been involved, because as we all know, no one ever gets shot in the back of the head unless they've immersed themselves into the shady underworld of drugs. Especially in the 90s. Mm -hmm. However, there's never been any hint of evidence tying any of the Abernathys in any way to any type of drug. To those who knew them, this suggestion is so absurd that it would be funny if made under less serious circumstances. Drugs were of no interest to Neil, who preferred the loftier highs of historical reenactment and strategic board games. Nor were they something that Susan had ever dabbled in. The Abernathy family had been a straight-laced, law-abiding one. Some others have suggested that Susan may have masterminded the double murder of her husband and only child. When this suggestion is made, its supporters inevitably bring up two facts. The fact that Susan eventually moved back into the home where the murders had occurred, and the fact that she remarried two years later to a man who had been an old college friend of both hers and Neil's. We've already discussed Susan's decision to return to the home, and as for the marriage, well, it seems to me that the only way Susan could have pleased some people would have been to wallow alone in her grief for the rest of her life, which is an unfair thing to expect of someone. Susan had an airtight alibi, work, and then the carpool home for the day of a double murder. In this very hypothetical scenario, she would have had to arrange for someone else to kill Neil and Brendan, but why would she want to do that? 
I don't get the feeling there was any issues in their relationship, at least that are known. No, to the best of public knowledge, there wasn't. Things were going well. But even if Susan had been having some kind of affair, which to the very best of my knowledge was not the case, why arrange the death of her husband and her only child instead of just her husband? And for that matter, why not simply divorce Neil if she no longer wanted to be with him? Yes, divorces can sometimes be bitter, difficult, and expensive ordeals. But honestly, I imagine that as far as divorces go, a divorce from a person like Neil would be about as easy as a divorce could possibly be. He was well known for his kind, generous, and non-confrontational nature. I imagine that those same qualities would have characterized his hypothetical handling of a hypothetical divorce. And let's not forget, investigators ruled Susan out as a suspect, so seemingly there's no evidence to suggest her involvement in the killing of her husband and son. So the only thing I could think of would be is if she had some sort of life insurance policy and she was very cold-hearted and decided to have this life insurance payout because of it. However, if that were the case, I think it would be pretty easy to spot that motive. And I think that she would have remained a suspect at least. I think so. And also, I don't know what kind of life insurance payout she may have received, but even if it was significant, it's not like she upgraded and moved into some mansion or started a different lifestyle. She kept living her same life in her same home in the same job with the same car. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, but that would be the only thing I could see for why you would kill someone instead of divorce them. And even then, if she were to divorce him, I'm sure she would still be entitled to some sort of financial motivation. Right. And it's not like she would have been impoverished without him. She was a professional chemist. She had a career of her own. And in a world where she wanted to divorce him, she could have financially supported herself. It doesn't make sense. Now, moving on, Scott, I know you're always willing to hear out a conspiracy theory. I am. Well, I've got one for you today, and it's pretty weird. It takes us into a shadowy world of governmental intelligence, corruption, and greed. Here goes. I'm going to do my best to force this information into a nutshell, because it could easily be an episode in and of itself. So if anyone listening is well-versed on this topic, please forgive my brevity. Back in the late 70s, a Washington, D.C. IT company called Inslaw developed a software called Promise which stood for Prosecutor's Management Information System. As the name suggests, the software was intended for use in prosecuting attorneys' offices. Its purpose was to track arrests, defendants, charges, cases, court events, and witnesses through the judicial process. The groundwork for the systems that we use today. Yeah, but this was the late 70s, so it was pretty groundbreaking. It was designed to be easily installed in any jurisdiction and on the hardware of various manufacturers. Sounds pretty handy, right? Very convenient. Well, apparently it was, because everyone wanted a piece of promise, and therein lay the beginning of a scandal. Inslaw, the company who developed promise at the behest of, and with funding from, the U.S. Department of Justice, developed an original version which was in the public domain. In other words, anyone could use it for free because of the government funding that had enabled its development. Then, in the early 80s, Inslaw became a private company no longer interested in doing government work funded by government dollars. Soon, they developed a significantly enhanced version of the Promise software. The U.S. automated legal software market was worth billions, and they wanted to cash in on their new and improved product. 
there was a lot more money to be made via private sales than there was to be collected via government grants. Which is surprising, honestly. Keep in mind, this is the early 80s. Now, the DOJ did not like this. And so they misappropriated the new and improved software by way of sending a spy posing as a potential buyer to check out the software. He absconded from the premises with a computer tucked under his arm, a computer equipped with the latest version of Promise. And just like that, Inslaw no longer controlled the distribution of their own very desirable, potentially very lucrative product. I expect nothing less than some cartoonish escapade from the Department of Justice. Well, that's how I picture it. Now, after the misappropriation, a man with ties to the president at the time, Ronald Reagan, either gave away or sold promise to some 80 different countries around the world. Naturally, Inslaw did not receive a dime from this. The amount of money they likely would have made if they'd been able to sell their own product to those same countries was enormous. But that opportunity had been tucked under someone's arm and smuggled away, stolen from them. Unsurprisingly, Inslaw ended up going bankrupt. So that is the gist of what some call the Inslaw Affair. And you're probably wondering, that's all very dark, but what in the world does that have to do with a murdered father and son from the Bay Area? The realistic answer is nothing. The conspiracy theory, however, goes like this. Promise wasn't just top-tier legal automation software. It was also perfect for overreaching government entities who wished to effectively track political dissidents and enemies of the state in a decidedly Big Brother-esque fashion. No wonder the U.S. government wanted it. And at some point, someone or some entity in the U.S. decided that they would use the software to spy on Canadian law enforcement agencies. I know it sounds like we're just getting farther out there, but we're getting closer to the alleged link to Neil and Brendan's deaths, I promise. I'm, I'm waiting for it to come home with some sort of the auto shop was just a front and this is why he was actually less engaged in his business. That would be a more reasonable theory than what I'm about to present to you. Now, there was a man, a software engineer, who lived in Hercules, California, the same town as the Abernathys. And he claimed to have done some engineering for some shadowy intelligence agency, essentially making a special version of promise that would be distributed to unsuspecting Canada. One that would basically have a secret passage built in, a secret passage that would allow all the computers equipped with it to be hacked and endlessly spied upon. Are we getting to a mistaken identity here? Well, not really. That's another potential theory that makes more sense than what I'm about to present to you. Anyway, this man, the man who allegedly did the secret software work, his name was Michael Riconosciuto. And guess what happened to him after he went public with his claim that he'd been involved in that project? Oh, 100% car accident death. No. No. No, no, no. A week after his public declaration, he was arrested on drug trafficking charges. Now, Michael claims that he was framed, that he never had any involvement in drug trafficking, and that the bogus charges were drummed up so that the government could lock him away, silencing him. Some people believe him and some don't, but that's not the point. The point here is Neil and Brendan were executed and no one knows why. The killings make no sense, right? I'm still failing to see how they attach. Every theory I've come up with has come flat. Okay. So here is 
the conspiracy theory. What if they were killed because Neil, too, had somehow been involved with some sort of promise-related business or goings-on? There's no evidence to suggest this, but there was another man, Michael, who lived in the same town as them who claimed to have been involved with promise. Now, they did not know Michael. The Abernathys did not know Michael, but they lived in the same town. Yes, along with about 18,000 other people. But, you know, since they live in the same town, maybe Neil, too, was secretly somehow involved with promise. Okay, the big thing about conspiracy theory is it has to provide some sort of answer, not a what if. There's generally some sort of resolution. Hey, this is what happened. So, happening to just be kind of involved in the same project, like, that's not enough. Yes, I'm sorry. That's the conspiracy theory, and it's like, no one tried very hard with it. I apologize. I came up with two way better potential reasons than just, he might have also been involved. Many of our listeners probably share a city where somebody has done some sort of work with the government Mm -hmm. in some sort of fashion. Are they all tied into this promise conspiracy theory now? I don't know. I feel like nobody ever really ran with this conspiracy theory, so you could fill it out and make it what you want, really. The larger point is I'm very disappointed that it didn't actually provide any solid answers, and I'm just, I'm not buying it. Now, this probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway just to be clear. I'm also not buying it. In all seriousness, I think that what this conspiracy theory really speaks to is the bizarreness of the fact that Neil and Brendan were murdered at all. They truly were unlikely victims, and the unlikely circumstances of their murders have inspired, for some, belief in an unlikely explanation. Perhaps belief in this theory isn't indicative of someone being gullible, but rather someone struggling to believe that a crime like this could happen in the absence of a sweeping conspiracy scheme. And that, in a way, is understandable. Let's move on to something a little more firmly grounded in reality. Reportedly, Brendan had some issues at school. There were some other boys who picked on him, and some have wondered whether the double murder might have been related to that. However, this crime was pretty clearly the work of adults, adults who have behaved intelligently enough to remain unidentified for decades. Murders committed by children tend to be sloppier, and it's virtually unthinkable that a killer or killers around Brendan's age, 12, could have not only carried out the double execution-style homicide, but kept it under wraps for all these years. Kids love to rat themselves out. They really do. It also seems tremendously unlikely that a middle school bully would be able to convince or inspire an adult to carry out and successfully conceal a crime like this for their sake. So, who killed Neil and Brendan, and why? That's a question that haunts their loved ones as well as investigators. The fact that there's no default theory is a significant part of what makes this case so mysterious. There was no good reason for Neil and Brendan to die, we know that. But we don't know what the reason, however horrible, may have been. As mentioned in this episode's intro, this case is truly one of the strangest to ever inflict itself upon suburban California. However, that's not to say that it's hopeless. According to an article by Carl Fisher for the East Bay Times, investigators were able to recover physical evidence from the scene that may contain DNA left behind by the killer or killers. However, articles referencing attempted DNA evidence gathering from evidence related to this case are old. Actually, all articles related to this case are old. 
Presumably, investigators have yet to be able to identify a suspect in this case via DNA or any other means. And yet, investigative technology is always evolving. There may come a day when DNA evidence is successfully extracted and interpreted. And there may come a day when someone who knows something about this case comes forward. Because if there's one thing that's certain, it's that someone out there knows something. If you know anything about the murders of Neil and Brendan Abernathy, please call the Hercules Police Department at 510-799-8260. And if you found this episode to be of special interest, you may want to check out our episode on the unsolved double homicide of Bill and Peggy Stevenson. The Stevenson and Abernathy cases aren't related, but both involve extremely unlikely double homicides that took place inside the victim's own homes. Our episode on Bill and Peggy's case aired in July of 2023. You can scroll back to then in our feed to listen. That's all for this episode of Last Seen Life. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check out our website, lastseenlifepodcast.com, for photos from the story and links to the sources we used to write it. While you're at it, follow us on Insta and Twitter at LSA Podcast. New episodes of Last Seen Life go live every other Monday. See you then. If you think bringing on solid cases like Neil and Brendan's to the public's attention is important, please take a moment to rate or review Last Seen Live and tell your friends to check us out too. We'd really appreciate it. Also, don't forget to check out our new merch store where you can get an LSA t-shirt or hoodie. We donate 50% of the proceeds from every sale to the DNA Dope Project. Last Seen Live is written and researched by you, Leah. Audio engineering and editing is provided by me, Scott. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.